watchers in the fourth dimension. Not perhaps it's Sunday. Great Britain always closes on Sunday. Where you been? Because of the monsters. You realize what'll happen if he's right? It'll be the end of Operation Golden Age. Everything we've planned will be ruined. Hello and welcome back to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley, and the strain of reawakening must have disturbed her mind. As hinted at at the end of the last episode, it's time for the annual Malcolm Hulk lizard extravaganza as we discuss Invasion of the Dinosaurs. But before we get into that, Riley's going to take a look at the mail. Riley, over to you. Cy Hunt wrote in about Frontier in Space. He says, this is surely the story that convinced them they couldn't get away with studio jungles anymore. After this, we get better film efforts like Planet of Evil, but where do the Frontier in Space supporting cast go? The Draconian Prince and his pals are never seen again. I think we mentioned that we'd all like to see the Draconians come back in some form. The Green Death. Nathan Laws writes in about the Green Death and says, I have to agree that Joe's decision to run off and get married is handled better than either Susan's or Vicky's, even if it is still shockingly abrupt. At least she's in her own world in time, so has a proper context for what life will be like. I've always found this one to be really overrated. I love Boss, and I love that ending scene, but the rest of it really drags for me. I just don't think giant maggots are all that compelling, and the shady business people sitting around talking aren't really all that exciting as villains either. I absolutely love the next story though, so if things are on track, you guys will hate it. Can't wait to hear your thoughts after the respective episodes. Well, I was going to probably like it, but now that you said that, I think I'm going to start hating it. (laughs) Agree to disagree on the Green Death with you, Nathan. Riley, I think I messed up. Cy Hunt's comment was kind of on both Frontier in Space and Planet of the Daleks. My bad. That's okay. Dave Sanderson writes in and says, What's not to love? The doctor's a milkman, a cleaning lady, and then heartbroken. I always remember being unsure of Joe, but a full watch-through changed my mind. I quite like Mike Yates as well, and I like the full character arc. The frantic... (laughs) (laughs) The frantic trip to Metabellus 3 is a nice payoff. Thankfully, that's the last we'll hear of that place. Socially aware story, but not as preachy as it could have been. Bill Lamont says, I loved Sergeant Bitten's here, kitty, kitty. Thank you for reminding me. We all loved Sergeant Mittens here, kitty, kitty, in the Green Death. Cy Hunt also writes in about the Green Death and says, It was me. I wrote the chitinous letter. I claim my drink. Cy, <laughs> <laughs> when this episode goes out, if I see you again in London, I will happily buy you that drink. <laughs> and we got some people writing in about the Scorchies. Adam Wright says, Warning. Joe is making a thing will be stuck in your brain for a while after listening. I've literally pulled this song up on YouTube every day since the watchers put me onto the story. I would love to have known what the view count on that song was before we put out our episode about it. I wonder how much we bumped it up. Yeah, it's gone from two to 22. (laughs) Carol Burrill, I love the Scorchies. One of my favorite big finish stories with Joe. Those tunes stay with you long after the story is finished. Great listen to get to work with traffic issues. John Hart says, listen to the episode last night and cannot get Joe is making a thing out of my head. (laughs) I'm sensing a theme here. Yes, yes. Peter J. Kane writes in about our season 10 retrospective. I've always wondered why the Doctor is really shocked when the invisible Dalek is revealed at the cliffhanger of episode one of Planet of the Daleks, when he asked the Time Lords to send the TARDIS to follow them at the end of the previous serial. When I watched it as a child, it was out of order, and so made more sense standalone. When you watch the two stories back to back, it makes no sense at all. It's almost like they didn't have Malcolm Hulk and Terry Nation talk to each other. Almost. That's the mail. Back to you. 
Thank you, Riley. And as a reminder to our listeners, we really do love hearing all of your feedback, comments, and questions. And as you've just heard, we do try to read out as many of them as possible. If you want to write into us, you can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at at Watches4D or via email at Watches4D at gmail.com. We would really love to hear from you. It's time to get to Invasion of the Dinosaurs and to take a look behind the scenes. Work on this one began basically as soon as writer Malcolm Hulk finished work on his previous serial, Frontier in Space, when he basically immediately submitted his next idea, which was initially entitled Bridgehead from Space. That particular idea involved the Doctor returning to the present day to find that aliens had invaded and ordered the evacuation of London, installed a puppet government, much in the style of Vichy France in World War II. Similar to Hitler's policy of Lebensraum, the aliens would demand more and more territory, eventually relegating humanity to Australia, which they then planned to destroy. Charming. With Hulk working on this idea, producer Barry Latz had some of his own ideas. He was very keen to capitalise on the success of the Drashig puppets from the previous season's Carnival of Monsters, which he had felt had demonstrated the show's ability to do giant-sized monsters. In particular, he wanted to set a story in the time of the dinosaurs, which he felt would be a success with the show's younger fans. He consulted with the BBC's special effects department, which supported the feasibility of such a project. Script editor Terence Dix suggested that the dinosaurs could instead be incorporated into Hulk's idea and use them to terrorise London instead of the aliens. Hulk came back with a revised storyline entitled Time Scoop. In his new narrative, he was influenced by the tendency of certain sectors of humanity to always look back to certain times in the past as a golden age, without any consideration of any of the drawbacks. Let's suggest that the serial could also continue from the events of season 10's finale of The Green Death, in which Captain Yates had been brainwashed by Boss, and that Yates could be positioned as one of the people responsible for the dinosaurs. Initially, Dix had thought that Yates might have been killed off at the end of the serial, which I think Julie would have been very happy about. <laughs> but Let's decided against this, thinking that Yates could potentially return in a future serial. More on that later. Initially, Let's wanted to direct Time Scoop himself. However, he and Dix were also busy working on their other show, Moonbase 3, and he didn't have time. As a result, they brought in Paddy Russell to direct, and she was actually offered the choice between this serial and the next one, Death to the Daleks. She chose this one. We have, of course, seen her before. She was last involved with Doctor Who as the director of The Massacre way back in Season 3. With this story, Lex felt that she would be a good fit as she had prior experience with technically complex productions. Joining her in our core production team for this, we have Dudders returning for the 29th time to provide incidental music. Richard Morris joins as designer, making his only contribution to the show, and he is also known for work on Survivors, Zed Cars, and Record Breakers. We also have the iconic Barbara Kidd returning as costumer. She had, of course, previously contributed costumes to Season 10's Frontier in Space and The Green Death. She will continue to make appearances all the way into the Matt Smith era. Paddy Russell, on her very first day of filming, managed to quite remarkably break filming protocol. She took a filming crew undercover as tourists to record certain London landmarks in the early hours of the morning in order to capture footage of deserted London. She did not have permission from the BBC, nor the relevant government agencies to do this, but by God it looks good. <laughs> Additionally, to preserve the mystery of the monsters, Let's agreed to Russell's suggestion that part one be promoted and broadcast simply as Invasion. Hulk was allegedly furious about this decision, feeling that such a generic title would harm the serial's ratings. The serial was broadcast between January the 12th and January the 16th, 1974. 
Two days after the first part aired, Hulk lodged a formal complaint with the BBC over the episode's title, claiming that it harmed his reputation as a writer. Letts would later admit that the gimmick was misjudged as the BBC's promotional materials made no effort whatsoever to hide the appearance of the dinosaurs. Eventually, Letts and BBC head of serials Ronnie Marsh would extend their apologies to Malcolm Hulk, but this would still end up being his last ever set of scripts for Doctor Who. We will move into our short summary, which is in the hands of Julie this episode. I recall the time they found those fossilized mosquitoes, and before long, they were cloning DNA. Oh, uh, uh, wait a second. <clears throat> oh, sorry, wrong story. Right. <laughs> Central London's frightening in the dark. All the dinosaurs are running wild. Someone thinks technology is the worst. I admit I could see their side, but then they talk genocide, and I don't think they'll be coming back again. Oh no. And that, my friends, is how you do a parody of a parody. Thank you. I think this is why everyone likes Julie better than me, Riley, or Don. Agreed. <laughs> Thank you for that, Julie. You're welcome. Part one, let's talk about it. Aren't those early shots of deserted London absolutely stunning? Definitely worth Paddy Russell going undercover. Before we even get there, I did notice that whole invasion thing. Mm -hmm. I was like, why only invasion? I thought it was going to be like going back to titles of episodes. And I was like, yes, <laughs> we're going to get episode titles. Oh, no. No, we're not. Okay. <laughs> that made me very sad. Yeah, episode titles were in black and white again. <laughs> Everything's great. <laughs> and yes, that beginning is very atmospheric. What I will say is on the DVD version, there is the option to watch their attempt at color recovery for episode one. No, no. <laughs> I watched both the color recovered version and the black and white version. And all I will say is there is a reason that they chose to continue to make the black and white version the primary method of viewing. <laughs> the color recovery work did not work very well on this. The Doctor Who restoration team will be the first ones to admit that. It's not good. We have black and white. We have this atmospheric beginning. We're using woodwinds and percussion. We're not just relying on synth. The fact that she found empty streets of London, I was impressed and I loved it. And how did she find such like distressed, like run down streets? Did she shoot in the East End? <laughs> <laughs> I think the thing to mention is this is 1970s Britain. So we're in the middle uh, of an industrial strike. We're on something called the three day week because we literally do not have enough fuel to power the entire city for an entire week. Wow. London's a pretty awful place to be around at this point in time. But there's a surprisingly large amount of birdsong, incredibly loud and frequent birdsong. <laughs> yeah. But you know what's also awesome is I listened to this with closed caption. And so when the TARDIS comes in, it makes a warp sound. The warp warp. I yeah. love the warp warp. warp. <laughs> <laughs> makes me happy. Of course, the Doctor has them, of course. I mean, he wanted to get to Unit HQ and they're in the middle of deserted London. Good job, Doctor. How come it always takes them forever to realize something's wrong? You don't just like step out of the police box and say... We're in London and it's empty. Isn't that weird? Or that it takes him so long to realize he's not where he meant to go when he's never where he meant to go. <laughs> <laughs> I love in this episode how he's like, oh, yeah, we're probably just a few miles off course. It'll be fine. That's pretty much his attitude the entire time. But at least here he's flat out saying it. 
Don, I thought of you because we very quickly end up with some shots on an industrial estate. And I was like, oh, look, Quater Masturbation returns. <laughs> yes. <laughs> In this case, I forgave it because it was so atmospheric, so well done. I wanted to know if it was forbidden to throw bodies in the river. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Quater Masturbation looks so much better in black and white. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. Actually, what I appreciated, and I might be skipping around, but we're going with the black and white thing here. We get that individual who's in the car and he's trying to get away and he has an accident. I was surprised that they showed the man's body after the accident. Mm -hmm. But again, since it's in black and white, I think it probably looks better that way than if they showed me in some colorized version. Watching the colorized version, that's actually quite horrific because you see the red of his blood and that's certainly a lot more shocking than we're used to seeing in Doctor Who. It's surprisingly gory. I guess it would have depended on how well they did it because I could see it being more disturbing, but also it could be kind of cheesy if they don't do it right. Based on the color recovery, they did it right. It does not have a place at 6pm on a Saturday night while you're eating your dinner. <laughs> Fair. Deserted London was kind of reminiscent of 28 Days Later, almost. Actually, one of my friends back home who was considered to be an essential worker in the early days of the pandemic, he was going into his place of work every day when no one else was going into London. What we see in this story is basically what he described it as looking like. Holy crap, this is really eerie. I really love seeing it, but I would not want to see it in person. I couldn't help but think, especially, and I'm sorry to skip around here, when we get to the pterodactyl attack scene, I guess we'll call it a pterodactyl <laughs> scene. Pterodactyl of terror. Yes. That scene, combined with the black and white and how it was shot, and also all the empty space that we were talking about, basically it's, it's a setup of long, empty shots. And then we have an attack scene and a closed up garage and it's very, very claustrophobic. And it's all in black and white. Yes. When I thought about that, I immediately thought of Night of the Living Dead. Oh, yeah. yeah. This is the first serial in a oh, decent while where I was blown away with how well it was directed. I think the Absolutely. direction was yeah. insanely good. The shots were fantastic in the, oh. I mean, so much of this was so well shot and to do that, dealing with those creature effects and still making it look as best as it could is really impressive. That was one thing I remarked on. There are certain shots like as early on as this, I'm like, this director's got it. Yes, the monsters look a little cheesy, but the way that it's all utilized and how she structured it, this works. Yeah. When we see this, and I know we were pretty harsh on the massacre because it was entirely missing, but this makes me convinced that if we could actually see the massacre, mm -hmm. we would rate it pretty highly based on the direction of this. Absolutely. Let's talk about the unit, folks. We kind of learn a little bit about what's going on. There's some kind of threat. Yates is more worried about looters than whatever monster is showing up because fucking Yates. <laughs> well, I think in this case, he has a reason why. Yeah, because he's on the side of the monsters. Spoiler, literally everyone <laughs> except our usual folks are in on this conspiracy and they all look like they are, except Yates, who is just kind of crazy at this point. Yeah. I still love that text that we all got from Julie in the week that just said... <laughs> Benton's still the best and Yates is still the worst, or words to that effect. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> oh, uh, man. But you can tell one immediately something's off with Yates. I think they do a pretty good job. One thing I will say 
it's not a huge deal because we've already seen the pterodactyls, but I actually kind of wish we didn't see the dinosaurs until the actual very end of the episode. Yeah, that's true. That would have made a, a much better cliffhanger. Yes. The setup is really good. I really like that line because of the monsters. Hard cut. And then it's Tyrannosaurus Rex. And there you go. Maybe they could have with a pterodactyl attack, maybe make it like the Hitchcock shower scene and make it so choppy. You can't really see too much of what's going on. So, you know, there's just like a mouth that's attacking them. And that's all. Yeah. I just realized I missed a trick when introducing this episode as I should have made allusions to let's bang a gong for the children of the revolution <laughs> as we tackle T-Rexes. <laughs> Never mind. Shoulda, coulda, woulda. <laughs> I went back and forth because I really loved that line of the because of the monsters and then the cut and made me upset that, well, yeah, they are monsters, but they're dinosaurs. They're not like crazy monsters. And you know how much I love crazy monsters. But the more I thought about it, and especially how it involves the entire plot of the time eddies and stuff, it had to be dinosaurs. There was no other way this could have, the whole plot would have worked without it. Did it? They were trying to create a crisis to get people out of town. What's wrong with Robot Yeti? Huh? <laughs> In this instance, since they were using, they were already manipulating time. Uh, they probably didn't know about the Yeti, so they didn't go back in time to get the Yeti because they didn't know they existed. If you can build a time machine, you can get a robot Yeti. <laughs> Cheap. Okay. Ignorance is no excuse. That's right. You're going to come up with this insane plot. Come on. I'm not going to lie, though. The T-Rex destroying the building is probably the best effect with that T-Rex. Yes. <laughs> yes, yeah. that's true. If you're watching it in black and white, it's significantly less impressive in color. <laughs> You said it was the effects team that said, yeah, we can do that. Yep. Were they being sarcastic and he just didn't know? <laughs> I don't think they were. I think they were being deadly serious and just being like, yeah, yeah, we can do that. Sure. Why not? I just imagine that when Spielberg decided to make Jurassic Park and they're in a pre-production meeting, he brought footage of this. And he said, I'm just asking you to do better than this. <laughs> <laughs> this is your, your low bar. You just have to beat this. <laughs> Sure, Boy. we can do that. It's the same team. Sure. Yeah, it's the same team. <laughs> You're watching it in color. The T-Rex the is like halfway between 1950s Japanese Godzilla and Harryhausen. It's yeah. not so good. Well. But we do end up, firstly, we get the doctor getting to put on a Cockney accent after he's captured. Brilliant. A play fight with an obvious prisoner, you know, who is obviously going to betray them and then mm -hmm. betrays them. <laughs> We're like going through the tropes here. Then he gets some Venusian Aikido. Check. Steals uh, a Jeep before immediately getting recaptured. Check. I normally don't like that trope of escaping and getting recaptured, but at least here it was pretty funny because they were trying to steal the vehicle they're going to be put on anyway. Yeah, we're not that mad at you because you've just saved us taking you out at gunpoint. And then, of course, they immediately run into a T-Rex giving it our first of many T-Rex cliffhangers. Yup. <laughs> and we're into part two. Since we're back in color, I was like, yep, dinosaurs definitely look better in black and white. Yeah. Because I initially watched the attempted color recovery version of episode one, my comment on part two is, wow, the color is immediately a lot better than the color recovery <laughs> attempt, but this dinosaur still looks shit. I actually like the look of the Brontosaurus and the Triceratops. Mm -hmm. I think those two were pretty well done, especially because they didn't move very much. And the Triceratops was primarily mostly like in the underground once we get to episode, what, five or six. Yeah. But yeah, the T-Rex is horrible. Just, yeah. just horrible. And it looks even worse when it's CSO'd in front of soldiers. 
anytime they use CSO for the dinosaurs, it doesn't look good. There was like one or two times that I think was pretty good considering. My favorite part with the T-Rex in episode two is that when the two soldiers go off and try to fight it back, they then decide to take cover behind, it looks like some sort of ice cream little wagon (laughs) thing. And I thought like, you know, that is a really good idea. You've got to get some cover because you never know when that T-Rex might pull out a six shooter gun and (laughs) just start firing. You got to be protected from it. Invasion of the dinosaurs with machine guns. Yeah. Now that would be interesting. Always carry protection. <laughs> Didn't you learn anything from Jurassic Park? It's motion <laughs> that attracts the T-Rex, right? So if they hide behind something, obviously it'll just forget that it was ever there. <laughs> uh... You know what I was kind of sad about? We get this individual who is calling the doctor a wizard. Mm. Oh, the peasant. Yes, the random the guy. I'm kind of sad that we didn't get a couple more random people like that. Yeah, that would have been fun. Yeah, I do like that. But I really do love how he was well tucked away in the background, hidden from us at the very beginning. He was back there for like a couple cuts back and forth in there, that little garage they were in. And I thought that was a yeah. clever little move by our director there. It's like very nice. I think Paddy Russell directed that well, but from a purely scripting perspective. Later on, Malcolm Hulk shows us that the people behind the time eddies are pretty well in control of them. If they are intent on just bringing dinosaurs through, why do they bring this random peasant from the time of Richard I through? That is a good point. He slipped and fell on the thing. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I was hoping they'd have a few more random people scattered in from other places. Yeah. But... It is what it is. I don't mind it that much. That didn't bother me at all. I mean, as a complaint, it's relatively small. It's there exclusively to make the Doctor notice that it's a time eddy. Mm -hmm. I just wish they'd peppered a few more of those in to make it less conspicuous as just purely a narrative device for that. We get back to our unit, folks. We have Benton putting together (laughs) tea time, and he actually is allowed to have some tea (laughs) So I'm very happy for him. On the mention of Benton, he is so pleased with his color coding of the dinosaurs. Absolutely. Oh my God. I love it. As well he should be. (laughs) It was adorable and I loved it. But it was a good point. He's like, we need to identify which type because maybe there's some correlation. (laughs) If you actually think about it, because all those dinosaurs come from different periods. So you got some coming from the late Jurassic. You have some coming from the Cretaceous. So kind of important but not really but i love it anyway yeah i might have looked up some of those dinosaurs i'm a huge nerd isn't it here when we get introduced to general stick up his ass yes general General finch Finch. (laughs) who is very different from for finch for finch yes so long ago this guy is obviously bad news and this is one of my sort of plot complaints I think it would have been nice if Mr. Obviously Sus actually wasn't involved in the conspiracy. He was just an a-hole. Yeah. <laughs> He's just an a-hole. <laughs> just your garden variety a-hole, but nope. And that's a very common complaint about this story is literally everyone we meet, aside from our regulars, plus one of our regulars, is in on the conspiracy. <laughs> yeah. I understand the critique, but to be honest with you, I, it kind of threw me because I, I really thought like, okay, so it's limited to just these people. Okay, there's one more. Oh, okay, there's another. I didn't expect this. <laughs> the other thing to think about is that they've literally pushed everyone else out of London 
there's only so many people there. And obviously the people who are a part of this conspiracy are the ones who are going to be left because they need to be able to run things. And it also feeds into that early Pertwee era trope of the bad news general, right? We had General Scobie <laughs> in, who got duplicated by the Autons in Spearhead from Space. We've got General Carrington, aka General Moral Duty, in The Ambassadors of Death. Every time we meet someone senior to the Brigadier, they are bad news. That's very true. Yes. Did you notice that they were also trying to pair up Yates with another girl trying? Every once in a while, I was just sitting there. I was like, Sarah, don't fall for Yates because that, no, don't do not do that. It's like they were hinting at it, but because Yates is also now bad news, it's just not going to happen. Yeah, Yates got yeah. his Bond villain monologue in episode two <laughs> where he just starts wistfully talking about the better times. And you can see like Sarah Jane behind him like, this guy is absolutely insane. <laughs> <laughs> and it really would have been nice if they had left that a little longer. Tipping the hand with Yates in episode two, it doesn't feel right. Like, we should be left hanging. Who is the traitor within unit? I've always disliked Yates, so I'm like, yeah, finally, <laughs> we know. <laughs> of course it's this guy. Um. <laughs> no, I think just from a conspiracy thriller plot, it does kind of fall down because everyone is involved and you normally wouldn't suspect a unit operative, but they just go right out and say it. <laughs> Yates, not so innocent. It's just amazing how... The doctor immediately susses that there is someone in central London doing this. He gets it pretty quick. By the time we meet the scientists, we pretty much know what's going on. These guys are behind this and obvious guy is somehow involved. We then meet the Right Honourable Charles Grover MP, who is overseeing everything. And, you know, he's already got some environmentalist leanings. And you kind of think, OK, this guy probably involved as well, particularly when you hear about this thing called Operation Golden Age. <laughs> it's all just so, so obvious. But this does have one of my favourite lines when the doctor describes the Brontosaurus as large, placid and stupid. <laughs> accurate. Rude, but accurate. <sighs> Yates, sabotaging the doctor's stun gun, putting him in danger. What a wanker. Yeah, we've established that. Yep. Yeah. And the Brontosaurus disappears and a T-Rex shows up, giving us our second T-Rex cliffhanger <laughs> and taking us into part three. Yates feeling a little bad about stuff? Just a little. A little bit, except it was like people were actually like in danger of like being killed. He was like, yeah, no, I can't be in with that. Yeah. Although... The irony of it is that he doesn't want them to be like directly killed, but in essence, once they go through with their plan, they're going to die anyway. Yeah. So like it's just prolonging. He's OK with them never having existed, but as long as he doesn't have to watch them die, it's cool. <laughs> That's very passive aggressive, but I can kind of see that. It's the British way. <laughs> is that how the Empire came about? Just pure passive aggression? Pretty much. We were so pissed after the Boston Tea Party, we were just extremely passive aggressive to everyone else on the planet until we conquered them yeah pretty much we're starting to get to the point now where sarah jane's really starting to become useful mm -hmm. and become a mm. badass and i absolutely adore her this is when it happens guys yeah it's this episode where i started asking myself how does sarah jane smith and joe differ and i thought it really is about how they are using the plot because Sarah Jane is more self-determined. She has her own thing. She wants to be a journalist. She still wants to be a reporter. Her relationship with the doctor is, he's an interesting story. But I don't have like any like 
situation with him where I feel like I'm beholden to him like Joe because she was brought in to be his assistant right at the very beginning. So Sarah Jane is practically on her own path, on her own course, and the doctor just happens to be an interesting person who ends up being around newsworthy events that she wants to write about. Yeah, he intersects with her life, but she's not brought in to help him. Right. She's, she does her own thing. And what I love about Sarah Jane as well is that because she's a reporter, she is very, very observant. And that's how her plot moves forward is because she notices things. She's, she takes action on things and she makes things happen. Kind of like in the Barbara sense where the plot moved with Barbara. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what's happening with Sarah Jane. I think with Sarah, her weak points, i.e. trusting the general, is because she believes that the general can get her access to places she wouldn't otherwise have access to and thus flesh out her story better. So she's almost like looking at this myopically because she thinks there's an advantage from a journalism perspective. It's really cool the Mm -hmm. way they handle that. And at that point, she has no reason to suspect him. Yeah. Aside from that evil looking mustache. (laughs) (laughs) Same mustache that General Scobie had. There you go. And Carrington, I think. (laughs) What if the mustache is behind all these plots? (laughs) (laughs) Big finish. Are you listening? (laughs) Sentient mustache. Actually, that was an episode of The Tick. Never mind. (laughs) But so Sarah Jane is taking pictures of the dinosaur. And because Yates is a terrible person, she gets attacked and almost killed as the T-Rex is like trying to eat her through that door and window. I actually think that was filmed really Mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. Most everything is filmed well. It's mainly just the dinosaurs themselves that have a problem. That said, Sarah, come on. You are faced with an enormous monster. And what do you do? You make an absolute ton of noise and draw attention to yourself. Come on. Yeah, well, Anthony, if you were all of a sudden approached with a dinosaur that shouldn't exist (laughs) and is starting to wake up and is like maybe starting to look at you, what would you do? Probably freeze because I'd be too scared to do anything else, (laughs) to be honest. But it wouldn't be like a conscious I should stay still. It would be like a oh shit kind of freeze. But the T-Rex bursting through the wall is straight out of Carnival of Monsters and the Drashigs. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you can really see that influence there. I like it. I thought it went really well. But this also sets up another great moment for me. The doctor saves her, takes her back to Unit HQ. They're all like, okay, Benton, you're in charge of watching out for her. She wraps him round her little finger. Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, buddy. He's just so sweet-natured. He is, but he gets his moments in future episodes, and I love it. (sighs) She goes off to see Grover and starts talking about plans to build nuclear bunkers with generators. And he mentions back in the Cold War days. I kind of love that. That gives us a tiny little hint at this universe. At the very beginning of their conversation, he said that we have a generator downstairs. Yes. I was immediately like, you have a generator? Yeah, because he offers to make tea. Yes. Yeah. Immediately, I was like, this guy. (laughs) I just find it fascinating how the Cold War is clearly much shorter in the Hooniverse. Yes. And then, of course, they go into the file room. The second file he looks at, he finds the plans and suddenly they're down in the bunker because it's secretly an elevator. That's really smooth. Yeah. It's funny that you guys mentioned in the second episode that the plot is kind of like shortened. It's shown the hand very well, but I think that getting the twist at the end of this one is actually brilliant. Awesome cliffhanger. Yes, it is. 
That's why I think that I forgive the other pieces of it because the story isn't just about that part of the conspiracy. There's also a whole nother subplot that's going on. And if it didn't have the subplot, I would agree with you. Mm -hmm. But since we have this, I'm willing to forgive the rest of it. Yeah. Before we get to that, though, knowing Grover's in it, so we've got the scientist, we've got Grover, and we've got Yates. We haven't yet had it confirmed that Finch is involved in the conspiracy. We all know it because he's clearly shifty as hell. (laughs) So far, he's the only additional character we've met who is not in on it. And we find that out very, very, very quickly in part four. What I really liked about the cliffhanger is twofold. First off, when Sarah Jane is in that room with the blinking lights, my first thought was, oh shit, not mind control again, please. God, no, (laughs) not mind control again. So not only was I incredibly pleased to see that, oh, it's just something to put her to sleep, but then to throw that curveball of, well, you're on a spaceship, we're going through space. I immediately at that point, I'm like, yes, that is what I love about this show. Even though this is completely false and we learn later, but at this moment, it's Doctor Who, literally anything can happen. And I love that. I want to talk a lot about the spaceship because this is something where celebrities have been brought in. You've got a politician, a novelist, and an athlete. The novelist talks about, I've now got better things to do with my hands and holds up like this really shitty clay pot. (laughs) But at the time, we're starting to see things like the Cultural Revolution in China. So they're repurposing people for jobs that they're completely unsuited for, and that's kind of being parodied a little bit here. In case you guys haven't noticed, we've moved on to episode four. Didn't I not say we were going into episode four? Not in the slightest, no. (laughs) It's okay, we haven't done this very much. That's fine. This isn't like we're nearly 100 episodes into this. (laughs) Right. We're in episode four for anyone listening who's not following on. But on top of that, when they lock Sarah in the room, they're like, oh, you're dangerous. We're going to indoctrinate you. It's not brainwashing. It's just pure indoctrination. And it just feels like a really heavy handed commentary on China and other authoritarian regimes. And I think that's really cool. Yeah, pretty much. It's basically just everything in life is terrible right now. Don't you agree? Look at all of this terrible waste and disgustingness. So rather than fix it, we're just going to leave. <laughs> <laughs> or you think we're just leaving. We're leaving a bunch of wallies behind to clean up the planet. We'll come back. We'll be fine. As far as they know, they're leaving. Yes. Which is something that I absolutely love when we find out that it's not true. Because all I can think about is that, my God, this would be the best practical joke to pull on the rich and powerful. <laughs> you're like, yeah, you're all going on a spaceship. You guys are getting out of here to a better place. This will be great. Oh, I, I swear that feels like it could be an Arrested Development plot. <laughs> it could be. It, it also, to me, feels like these are important people, but I don't think they would necessarily be the best people right. to start life on a new planet or whatever this golden age is. Well, they could only bring certain people back because most people are intelligent enough to be like, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a similar thing. Can you really imagine Elon Musk starting a new civilization on Mars? I can no, see him trying. shit at it. <laughs> I wanted to point out is what the hell kind of car does the doctor now have? Okay, okay, just just stop a second. Who in the production staff would want the doctor to have that kind of thing? The answer is no one, because Pertwee asked them to pay for it. And they said, fuck no. I am including Pertwee in that. 
It's his own damn car. Yeah. So when the production team said, no, we're not doing it, he went and had it built out of his own dime. Oh, my God. So he actually owned this damn thing. Okay. Got it written in. And I'm just thinking, man, I miss Bessie. Uh, right? I don't know the background here. I don't know his biography. He had to have auditioned for James Bond like every single time they were casting it, right? <laughs> I mean, you would think so. Yeah. I'm sorry. I had to point that out because it was just bad. Oh, oh no. That was next on my things to talk about, oh, Julie. So okay. you're good. And then he brings out that gadget that looks suspiciously like a bong as well. <laughs> How do you think he came up with the idea for the car? (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Mm. That said, I feel like we get a lot of throwbacks to the Web of Fear. There's the abandoned Mm -hmm. tube station, the posters outside it on the newsstand. You get into the underground itself and it's really atmospheric and cool. And there's a secret elevator in there, which is the kind of thing as a kid, I often imagined being behind like a closed door in the underground. I love all of those scenes. There's also a little bit of enemy of the world in there, too, though. Yes. Mm. People being held underground under false pretenses. Uh, It's very much like that. And on top of that, Hulk calls the lead scientist Whitaker. And of course, David Whitaker wrote Enemy of the World. Hmm. Ah. I feel like there's a very like knowing little nod there. I love the scene where the scientist and the other guy figure out that the doctor has found them. He goes up the elevator and they do the whole closing the doors behind him, leading him back to the elevator. I just love that. I think that was a really fun scene and just a really interesting way of getting the doctor out of there. Yeah. And then they send a pterodactyl after him because why not? Why not? (laughs) I mean, if you have the option, go for it. And what did we think about the scientist characters? Like personality wise, they seemed very robotic. (sighs) Yeah. That's how Peter Miles always is. (laughs) We'll see him again in Genesis of the Daleks, and he is basically the same character. With all these environmental themes going on, how awesome would it have been if we find out that the person behind this entire conspiracy was Professor Clifford Jones from The Green Death? (laughs) (laughs) And Joe's in on it. Yes. (laughs) It's weird that this story has both an environmental aspect of it and yet is rather anti-environmentalist. Until the very end. It feels like it's going in that path and then the doctor has his little statement and then it kind of puts you back to like, okay, then what are we doing here? Not even that. It's the fact that it's environmentalism, but it's also like anti-technology. And I'm like, and yet you're using technology in order to make this happen. There's some some muddled messages here that I don't really quite want to figure out, never mind the ethics of it, which I, I do find to be very interesting. Like, what if the planet at this time was actually about to be over? If a big crisis had happened and there was just no fixing it, would it then be OK to try a plan like this? Oh, Okay, Don, you're going down a path. I don't. I don't want to go down. That's one of the reasons I like this. Is like, well, you know, this is clearly crazy and insane because they could have dedicated all this time to actually just improving things. But you know, what if? I don't know, yeah. Don. That sounds an awful lot like Yates talk. <laughs> <laughs> Introducing our newest member of the cast, Donald Yates. Yeah. <laughs> don't call me Donald anyway. <laughs> No, you are Don. You're a different person from Donald Yates. (laughs) Also want to talk about Lethbridge-Stewart's reaction to 
the doctor talking about the bunker, he doesn't believe him, given how much those two have been through together. Oh. I mean, come on, oh. you've seen way more ridiculous stuff with the doctor than a secret bunker underneath a tube station. And especially when we get, and I'm sorry to be jumpy, but we get to the beginning of episode five, and obviously I think what we learn later is the brig is just playing the long game, not playing his hand. But when he's taken in by the frame job at the end of episode four, all I could think of is that when he has to decide between Finch and the doctor, he'd be like, yo, Finch, I just met you, but I've known the doctor for years. We've genocided Silurians and sea devils together. We are tight. (laughs) And you guys are missing the whole fact that they put the doctor and the brigadier in a closet together. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. But we have to remember, we already know that Yates has pretty much lost it. He's just kind of lost it after dealing with all that stuff. And we're pretty sure the Brigadier is insane by this point to some degree. (laughs) Due to the three doctors. The only member of unit that seems to be mentally healthy is Benton. Yes. Because he just doesn't care. like, okay, oh, big slugs. Cool. (laughs) Moving on. (laughs) Giant maggots here, kitty, kitty, kitty. Yes. He is disturbingly undisturbed. He just, okay, all right. That's why Benton is the best. Yeah. We end the episode with the Doctor being framed for bringing the dinosaurs in and seemingly the Brigadier believing him. Right. Part five, let's go. Obviously, as I stated earlier, the Brig, I think, is just playing the long game. I don't think he believes the Doctor's in on it at all. I think he's just playing along, trying to get a read on Finch, because Finch is our last domino here for our list of conspirators. I wasn't sure if the Brigadier was playing along at the beginning, but by the time Finch orders him not to question and interrogate the Doctor, he's like, wait, something weird is going on here. And by that stage, he's definitely playing along with it. But here we get an awesome Benton moment. Oh, yes. (sighs) Might as well use that Aikido on me. I mean, what else can I say other than it's a wonderful moment? Benton knows the Doctor is the one who needs to figure everything out, and he just... I don't want to say sacrifices himself because that's a little bit too far down the line, but he can get in big trouble for letting the doctor go. We see that happen later because he's going to be put under arrest and court-martialed for it. Yeah, because he punches a general. <laughs> yeah. well, okay, that's further down the line. I'm just talking about this immediate one because once he wakes back up and they find him, Finch court-martials Benton. Yeah, or at least says he's going to. Yeah, well, and then the brigadier says, hey, Benton, court-martial yourself, and he's like, Okay. (laughs) Yes, sir. (laughs) Another thing, before we even get to that part, I really like how the doctor flips it on the general. When the general's saying, it's him, it's him, the doctor's like, yep, it's me. You figured it all out. So might as well bring everyone back into London now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, basically calls his bluff. Yeah. And then that's another thing that I'm sure if the breeder hadn't already been on the side of the doctor would have made him go, yep, there you go. Despite what we're already kind of saying about some of the elements of this not necessarily making sense, this is a very smart script from that kind of perspective. Mm -hmm. I mean, you make a really good point, Riley. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the character work is good. And even as far as the the MP's plan, I don't really, despite his legislation, I don't think he's that much environmentalist, but he is an authoritarian. And I'm sure the temptation of being able to go back in time and shape the world in his image is what he's really into yeah i wanted to talk a little bit about the doctor when he escapes quote unquote and there's really fun close-up shots while he's driving and making his like big escape and then there's that moment when he's like in an abandoned factory and i really thought he was going to do some donuts (laughs) 
<laughs> while he was there and really wanted that to happen. Come on, this is an abandoned factory in London, not the streets of Atlanta. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, I just wanted to point that out. I like that whole sequence. I thought it was shot very well because I'm just going on a little bit more about this being a really good director. Yeah, she's really good with action sequences. Oh, she's fantastic. Shout out for one of the few female directors we've had up to this point. And as the doctor's thinking about doing donuts, back with Sarah Jane Smith. Yes. At this point where I'm sure she recognizes it, and I think this is a general rule of advice for life, any project, mission, or group that assigns people the position of the elders is a bad one. (laughs) Yes. Also, if you're part of a project and they set up a specific room for you to go in to remind you of what you're supposed to be doing and why it's a great idea, immediately sus. <laughs> yes. Yeah, if they require indoctrination, get the fuck out. Also, random athlete dude who is like, you know what? I think I'm going to trust this Sarah Jane person. Mark. Love Mark. <laughs> random athlete, denim enthusiast Mark. <laughs> <laughs> but... It's this episode with Sarah Jane that I just had the most horrible, horrible thought. I thought, okay, this show has been on the air for a while. How many people that watched this episode live had seen almost all the episodes prior? And if so, did all of them just shudder and go, oh no, when Sarah Jane walked over to the supposed <laughs> you know where I'm going with this? How many people wondered if she was going to Katarina herself? Yes. <laughs> you have to admit that would have been a very surprising ending yeah. to our new companion. Surprise, she dead. She still would have had more episodes than Katarina. <laughs> Let's talk about the one thing that is clearly filler, and that is the helicopter chase. Helicopters. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. Gotta kill some time? Helicopter chase. We've seen it before, we're seeing it again. You know what, though? I'm pretty impressed, because if you think about it, it's really gotten to episode five, where we actually got, like, true filler. And in a six-party, you're normally getting filler in episode three. (laughs) Yep. Exactly. And it wasn't very long of a filler. No, this is one of the stories I'm far less familiar with. I think I'd maybe only seen it once, maybe twice before. I remembered it as having a lot more filler. I remembered the helicopter chase being a lot longer than it was. So I was very, very pleasantly surprised by this. And the doctor does exactly what I would do. He leaves the jeep, suggesting that he's going in one direction and then legs it in the other. Good for him. And he disables the vehicle because thank you, doctor, for being a smart person. And you get some pert we love by letting him do a fake voice again. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of does the fake Cockney thing for a bit. And there was a shot that they did that... I had to believe was stock footage they use where it was a flying shot behind a helicopter. I'm like, there's no way they had enough money for two helicopters. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, probably not. I'm surprised enough money for one helicopter. (laughs) I feel like the other thing we need to talk about is Sarah Jane or Sarah, as we just call her at this point, finally learning that Finch is not a good guy. Oh, As soon as he says to her, have you told anyone about this? You're like, oh, this is not going to end well. (laughs) Yes, I've told everyone is what you say. (sighs) What's interesting, though, is Grover basically invites her to be part of his plans. He's like, yeah, you're going to come with us now and and be part of this. And I hope you'll come around to our way of thinking. Really? You think she she can be okay with this? 
I mean, it's better than threatening to kill her. <laughs> she's been fighting this entire time, and you think all of a sudden she's going to change? All right, that's fine. All right, cliffhanger. We get the Doctor encountering a Brontosaurus, which doesn't look too bad, even if the model set it's on is obviously a model. <laughs> but then yeah, they bring in yeah. a cliffhanger, and we get another one with a T-Rex menacing the Doctor. I'm like, leave it with the Brontosaurus. It's fine. I'm over the T-Rex cliffhangers by this point. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, again... I think the Triceratops is the thing that looks the best. All right, part six. Is the Brontosaurus going to fight or make out with the T-Rex? <laughs> oh, they're making out. <laughs> <laughs> mm, hot dino action. I thought that they could have been more like Jaws, where less of the monster is better. Mm. From what I've heard, both Malcolm Hulk and Patty Russell tried to do that. They were like, oh yeah, this is not going to work as well as Barry Letts thinks it will, so let's try and minimize them. (laughs) (laughs) And this is still the compromise. Oh god. (laughs) Oh boy. (laughs) Gotta love the 70s, man. Yeah. Every once in a while I'm like, have you guys watched Clash of the Titans? That would still take money. Okay, that's true. I love this. I almost kind of like how crappy the dinosaurs are, (laughs) but that level of stop motion, you need a budget for. Okay, fine. Anyway, (laughs) but it's still not the worst special effects I've seen. No, it's not the worst special effects we've seen in Doctor Who. It's It's still better than anything we saw in The Dominators. (laughs) The brigadier comes to their rescue, right? Yeah, because he has a face-off with Finch, and they're both trying to claim the doctor. And then brigadier is like, Benton? And he stands up with his... And I'm like, oh, yes, Benton. And the brigadier has one of my favorite lines where he asks, is everyone in on this conspiracy? <laughs> and I was like, oh yeah, you are voicing my feelings <laughs> yes. exactly here. Oh man, but we're about to get to like the really sad part of this whole thing. Which is when the Brigadier and Benton actually see Yates actually turned. Uh, yeah. When Yates yeah. pulls a gun on them. Yeah. And yes, I know that we all know that Yates was bad and all that other stuff, but Brigadier and Benton truly did not believe that he was bad. And that's what's heartbreaking about it. I miss the version of Yates we had in The Demons. He was kind of fun. Yeah. Like, he wasn't perfect, but he wasn't this. Right. I can appreciate this because I don't think he's bad. But he's just broken. And extremely misguided. Even when he's talking about this Operation Golden Age, I don't think he was going to be taken back. No. He was going to cease to exist. And that's like, dude, that is so sad. And he's even like, I'm okay with that. Yeah, he's just that disillusioned. And if nothing else, it kind of gives Yates, who we've all kind of picked on, it gives him some sort of character arc. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you kind of feel your heart breaking for him a little when the Doctor says, you know, there never was a golden age because out of everyone, the Doctor's the one who would know. Yeah. But equally, yay for that private who shows up to distract Yates and allowing everyone else to overpower him. What a lad. I love that, <laughs> that private too because he was there and he was just like, I don't know what to do. Brigadier, what do you want me to do, sir? And Brigadier's make me some tea. He's like, absolutely, I'll go take it. He was like so happy just to make a cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of wish we saw more of him, but sadly, I think this is the last time we ever see that private. He would be a great replacement for Yates. Absolutely. He was like happy and shit. Uh, We also get Sarah sneaking back onto the spaceship and Mark is definitely on side. I think he's a little sweet on her. You think a little bit? A little bit. A little bit. Just a touch. It was a lot there. Also, now they're starting to wake other people up. Wow, this is very, very white. Isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) It makes you go, okay, what kind of golden age are you really trying to go back to? (laughs) So she's trying to convince them 
and it doesn't work at first and then they bring over what's his face grover in cosplay as an astronaut <laughs> yes yes and so some of them are like okay well he just came over see all this and then a little bit of back and forth there that was a little bit annoying with the the sarah jane story arc that's going on right there but at least finally they're like oh we believe you now and the best best line that I died laughing and had to pause the show for. It's said in the background, but it's clear enough. Is that after they have been, this has all been revealed to them, you hear somebody said, I sold my house. (laughs) 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 These are fundamentally useful idiots. That's the only way to describe them. Oh my God. (laughs) What a my other favorite things as sarah jane is doing this with all of them the brigadier and the doctor are going to be getting into this underground base and the way they're going to do it is they're going to blow a hole through the elevator shaft so that they can get down there and then after they blow up a hole the brigadier's like i'm coming with you and the doctor says it's less conspicuous if i go alone you just blew a (laughs) hole in the floor and you don't think they would have noticed that it's a very subtle hole (laughs) very when is the doctor inconspicuous (laughs) The way he dresses. Come on. Yeah. The other thing I really love at this point, the brigadier radios for reinforcements. Benton is on the other side. And eventually we see that Finch is holding him at gunpoint. And Benton, this is where he is the absolute best, overpowers Finch, punches him a couple of times. And when Finch says, you'll be court-martialed, Benton just says, yes, sir. Sorry, sir. (laughs) (laughs) He apologizes to this asshole. What an amazing story this is for Benton. Absolutely. It's probably my favorite Benton story. Like, yeah, I could talk about the other one and we got baby Benton, but I think this is better. It's definitely better. He is giving here Kitty Kitty a run for its money. (laughs) Absolutely. We kind of end with an ultimate showdown in the bunker. Grover and Whitaker are ready to push the button. And of course, everyone gets there in the nick of time. Doctor shows up with Lethbridge, Stewart and Benton, yet Whitaker pulls the lever regardless. And the Doctor is the only one who can move in the time field. And he does the standard. He reverses the polarity. Uh. (laughs) And Grover and Whitaker are sent back into their so-called golden age, which I can only think is probably the Jurassic era, which is kind of grim. Right. Wherever they went, you know, they died almost immediately from some sort of disease they don't have any immunity for. Yeah. Yeah. Or they got eaten by a T-Rex. That's what I was waiting for. Also possible and amusing. Yeah, I was waiting for that shot. Monty Python style, they're immediately stepped on by a T-Rex. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Giant foot. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Well, then we get our climax and then we have our resolution. For once. Yes. And we get our punishment. Captain Yates, sick leave and quiet resignation. What the hell happened to firing squad? Come on, Al. (laughs) Hey man, 1970s Britain is not a totalitarian state, no matter how much Grover and Co. wanted it to be. But I also love that we got uh, Benton just being so happy about punching Finch. He's like, I got to punch a general. He was so excited. Bless his heart. And then we have like a really, really wonderful, like friendly, warm moment between the doctor and Sarah Jane, which is really kind of crucial because when you think about it, they're not really together much this entire serial. I mean, they split and they're on their own path for since like episode three. And he actually asks her to come with him. Mm -hmm. And she's like, no, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, but but Florana, it's wonderful. It's beautiful. Come on. And that's the Pertwee that right there that we all love. The sweet and charming third doctor. 
one thing I do want to touch on, the Doctor kind of agreeing with some of what Grover was saying. You know, he moralizes a little and agrees with concerns around human greed, pollution, etc., etc., but equally says, but I don't agree with his methods and humanity has to work to improve the world that they have now. And I think that's such like an important message of this story. What Grover is thinking as the problems of today, he's not wrong, but the way he's going about trying to solve them and living in the past and saying things used to be so much better, that kind of backward-looking perspective is the mistake. I think that's really, really cool kind of message that really, really lands well. And I'm done moralizing. <laughs> Thank you for listening yeah. to my TED Talk. <laughs> that brings us to the end. Let's go ahead and rate this. I am up first this time. And what I will say is, this story isn't perfect, but I can easily forgive some of the bad dinosaur effects. I can even forgive the fact that almost everyone is in on the conspiracy. This story twists and turns. Making Yates a traitor was kind of ballsy. Like him or not, sorry, Julie. <laughs> He's a character that we've had now for three seasons, basically. This is his fourth season. We've kind of got used to him being part of the furniture and the poor guy was brainwashed in the last episode and went through quite a tough time. And you don't really necessarily expect him to be a traitor unless you're Julian generally hate him. <laughs> Keep calling me out there, Anthony. Oh, you know, I can't resist. But overall, I really enjoyed watching this. That's really what matters at the end of the day. And I think I'm going to give this seven and a half Ray Harryhausens out of ten. <laughs> Don, you're up next. I enjoyed this. I did go through a lot of emotions while watching it. I thought the first episode was just amazing. Right up until that first dinosaur showed up and then I kind of went, oh, oh, here we go. But I eventually got over that and began to enjoy their crappiness. The conspiracy elements weren't terribly well done, but the story does. It always keeps moving. Our characters have something to do. I really liked some of the, the overall plot in terms of the moral quandary. If you could get a better future by replacing the past, would you do it? interesting stuff and overall it was just a lot of fun so i'm gonna give it seven and a half evil mustaches out of ten <laughs> okay julie you're up next i love this episode cereal what are you gonna call it i absolutely adore it i don't know what it is i forgive a lot more i think than the rest of you do i think that the music is phenomenal the direction is fantastic got an awesome character arc for Yates because we actually get him in some sort of place where you understand where he's coming from. You have Benton being a badass. You've got Sarah Jane also being a badass this entire time. And for some reason, something just resonated with me. And I don't know what it is, but I'm going to give it nine badass Bentons out of ten. Wow. wow. All right, Riley, it's all up to you now. I'm so, so sorry. I didn't like this one. I absolutely love this one. <laughs> the crazy twists and turns. I honestly think like if you didn't have the direction as good as it was, I would have gone down several points and I would have been like, yeah, this is all right. But man, sure, it doesn't make any sense. I don't care. The Doctor and Sarah Jane are starting to gel as a combo and they're apart for most of it. Just absolutely wild. I also agree with Julie, there's some weird parts of it. I, I don't know why I enjoy it so much. And I don't really care about dinosaurs. I actually don't really like stories with dinosaurs. To fall back on any criticism is that with a bit more editing, cut back on the helicopters, cut back on so many dinosaur shots, 
this could have been like really, 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 really high on my end, but I'm still going to give it eight and a half Venusian Ujas out of 10. Wow. <laughs> that cool. brings us to a story average of 8.13, which <laughs> makes it the highest so far this season. Admittedly, there's only one story <laughs> along with it. Definitely better than I thought it would do going into this. If you all had told me that you would rate this this highly, particularly you, Julie, and you, Riley, I would have been very surprised by that. I'm glad we all enjoyed it, just not what I expected. We're at the end of our discussion, which means we're also at the end of the episode. We will be back next time when we return to discuss everyone's favourite pepper shakers coming back in Death to the Daleks. But in the meantime, as always, thank you so much for listening and have a good one. You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Riley Shrek, Julie Philippek, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, Hot Dino on Dino Action, was recorded on Wednesday the 25th of May 2022. If this is your first time listening into the show, all of our previous episodes are available wherever you like to get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, please do subscribe. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at, at Watchers4D. And you can also email us at Watchers4D at gmail.com. Also, please consider leaving us a review or rating on your favorite podcasting app. Both of those things really do help the show. And always remember, if you have absolutely no confidence that we can make this world a better place, you too can simply live in the past, but only in your head. We don't actually have the tech to make that a reality.